The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 7th, 2022. Lawfare recently announced its new podcast series entitled Allies. The series from Lawfare's Bryce Clem and the team at Goat Rodeo DC tells the 20-year story of how the U.S. failed its eyes and ears, translators, interpreters, and other local partners that were on the ground in Afghanistan. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from August 2012. In the episode, Ritika Singh sits down with Bruce Rydell for a wide-ranging discussion of the state of Al-Qaeda in 2012, its affiliated groups, and the complicated relationship between the United States, the Taliban, and the Pakistanis. But first, here's a trailer for Allies. You can subscribe to Allies at a link in the episode description. After 20 years of war, the U.S. was getting out of Afghanistan. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. There are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country. Shocking scenes of desperation and chaos in Afghanistan are being seen around the world. The withdrawal from Afghanistan ended in chaos at an airfield in Kabul. In the face of that mayhem, the military got thousands of Afghans who worked with the U.S. out. But despite the efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and senior leaders in the military, even more were left behind. Their fate was decided by which side of a wall they were on, and whether or not they had the right pieces of paper. Now. They live in hiding. We were the eyes and ears of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. Why is it so hard to track the number of interpreters, translators, and contractors killed as opposed to U.S. soldiers? Because nobody wants to know the number. This show takes you inside their lives, the threats they faced, their attempts to escape, and the obstacles the U.S. government put in their way. I moved my family from location to location three times. There's no option for us. Some days they only find you. He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick this. The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation. The problem was the execution. Our story takes you from the front lines of the war to the halls of Congress to find out how did this happen? From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed our eyes and ears, the Afghan translators, interpreters, and partners who fought alongside the U.S. Coming this May. Welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes. Today's episode marks the first in a series of interviews that Ritika Singh is recording with people who have non-legal expertise in areas of interest to Lawfare readers. The basic idea is that a great many of the questions with which national security law struggles involve factual issues that implicate a diverse group of non-legal fields, from regional specialties to technical ones, and that we should hear more from such people. Ritika's first guest in this project 
is Brookings Senior Fellow Bruce Rydell, one of the country's leading experts on al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups in the AFPAC region. Bruce, who had a long career in the CIA and ran the Obama administration's reevaluation of Afghanistan strategy at the outset of the administration, sat down with Ritika for a wide-ranging discussion of the state of al-Qaeda, its affiliated groups, and the complicated relationship between the United States, the Taliban, and the Pakistanis. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, let's start by talking about al-Qaeda core. Um, I would love your thoughts on how you define al-Qaeda core and um, in, in terms of its objectives, first of all. Um, I, I like to refer to it as al-Qaeda al-Qaeda or mother al-Qaeda, because I think that uh, that's, al-Qaeda core is an American term, al-Qaeda al-Qaeda is an al-Qaeda term, and I think it more accurately captures the essence of um, the historic group around Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri, which create al-Qaeda as we know it in the 1990s and then um, provided its strategic level leadership, at least up until the demise of Osama bin Laden. Um, their goal, as they lay it out, is to drive the West out of the Islamic world so that we no longer can manipulate the Muslim world to our objectives. Um, the mechanism to do that is the so-called bleeding wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, and perhaps Yemen, where they recreate to America what they believe the Mujahideen did to the Soviet Union. You can argue whether the Mujahideen really did to the Soviet Union what they say, but they believe it. Um, the uh, ultimate objective is a new caliphate uh, which would unite the Islamic world. The closest thing they have ever come to identifying as a role model for that, and it primarily comes in Zawahiri's writing, is some kind of recreation of the Ottoman Empire, um, which was a legitimate caliphate uh, up until its destruction the end of World War One. Now, all of that to me is a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Uh, is it a fantasy to them, or is it an aspiration which they recognize is beyond their reach? Beyond their reach. Um, very hard to say. Uh, but that is, you know, that's the ultimate. If, if they could say, what should the world look like today, it would be something that looks a lot like the Ottoman Empire. The corollary would be that there'd be something like that in South Asia, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, Lashkari Taiba's self-proclaimed goal, mm -hmm. although it doesn't talk about it a lot, is recreation of the Mughal Empire, mm -hmm. a Muslim-dominated subcontinent in which the Muslim minority rules the non-Muslim mm -hmm. majority. They're both fantasies. They're not going to happen. But that's, that's I think, their objective. And how big do you estimate Al-Qaeda core to be, or Al-Qaeda al-Um to be? Um, I'm not trying to avoid your question. Okay. But here's the problem, I think, in judging Al-Qaeda core or al-Qaeda The actual number of people who are probably the equivalent of card-carrying party members mm -hmm. is probably in the hundreds or a few thousands. But in Pakistan, al-Qaeda operates in a syndicate of like-minded jihadists, like Lashkar-e Taiba, like uh, Josh Muhammad. Uh, to a certain extent, the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistan Taliban, definitely, the Haqqani network, so-called Haqqani network. 
the reason I think it's hard to judge the strength and the viability of the Al-Qaeda island in this sea is I think that the interaction between Al-Qaeda and the syndicate is now so extensive that it's almost impossible to tell where the line between one and the other becomes. So, the short answer would be Al-Qaeda al-Um itself is probably a pretty small organization, very much on the defensive, which has undergone major leadership change in the last year, which it's still grappling with, with the death of Osama bin Laden. But Al-Qaeda, the syndicate, is huge. Would be measured not in the tens of thousands, but in the hundreds of thousands of supporters in Pakistan, which is why, um, while I agree with the administration that Al-Qaeda core is on the defensive, I don't think the syndicate is on the defensive at all. I see. And in terms of where they're largely located, in terms of geography, where would you say the main areas are? The, 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 the training apparatus. Mm -hmm. If you, tonight, flew to Karachi, mm -hmm. and when you got there, asked, take me to an Al-Qaeda training camp, <laughs> uh, you would probably end up in the federally administered tribal areas. Yeah. Probably. But I don't think Ayman Zawahiri is in the federally administered tribal areas, and there's no evidence Osama bin Laden was ever in the federally administered tribal areas for any prolonged period of time between escaping from Afghanistan uh, and his demise. He spent almost all of his time in either Abbottabad or Haripur or other urban environments. Mm -hmm. The other senior Al-Qaeda operatives captured in Pakistan, and we haven't captured one in Pakistan in half a decade, but going back to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Abu Zubaydah, they were all found in urban areas, not in the tribal areas. The tribal areas is where the infantry mm -hmm. and the second lieutenants of Al-Qaeda operative. The generals are in the cities. Okay. And these leaders that you, know, you say are all hiding out in urban areas and kind of directing the infantry elsewhere, um, what kind of leadership do they exert over the other affiliate groups that you mentioned before? We have the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. It's in the material found in Bin Laden's, Bin Laden's hideout. Yeah. What we have seen of that information and what we've been briefed on uh, suggests what I call strategic command and control which is Bin Laden was in touch with the other members of the syndicate, Lashkari Taiba, the Afghan Taliban, uh, senior operatives of his. Mm -hmm. We know, for example, he sent a message to Ilyas Kashmiri, kill Barack Obama. Right. Um, so he's, he's in touch, he's giving them strategic guidance. In that case, he's actually saying, here's your task, report back to me on how you're going to do it. Um, with the more distant franchises, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, he was also in touch, but clearly um, communications was more complicated the further away, because all communications ultimately ran through a courier, uh, it does not seem to have been all that hard to send a letter to the courier um, and for you to get a letter back. Um, but it's not a what we would consider modern communication system. So he did not communicate things like uh, attack the embassy at 4 o'clock. Right. But he would say things like Remember to keep your focus on the priority, killing the Americans. Don't get bogged down in local problems. Um, 
if the United States government, in its wisdom, would do the right thing and publish a lot more of the Al-Tabah documents, uh, we would all have a much clearer picture of how the organization works. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand why they don't do that, but I think that the greater good is served by more transparency in what they found rather than less transparency, and I hope they will do it. Yeah. How would you say, if you were to put on your prophetic hat for a second, how that command and control has changed after bin Laden's death? Now that Zohiri is. Um, on the one hand, the succession was seamless. Planned, right. They, they, exactly. They planned ahead. Yeah. They knew this was going to, they knew this was a real possibility. Uh, in some ways, they welcomed because you know, in their warped mind, martyrdom is the ultimate goal for everyone. Um, but uh, while it's seamless in the sense that he took over and everyone has acknowledged him, it doesn't look a year later like uh, it's uh, as effective as it was before. Even Zawahiri's statements are getting less attention than they were before. Uh, so I think there's a question mark over how well it's going to work. Uh, and Zawahiri uh, has got to be concerned that we've broken the code. We've figured out how communications works mm -hmm. and um, that we will find him sooner rather than later. That there won't be another 10 years right. for him. Um, and you mentioned before that, um, you know, you agree with the administration that Al-Qaeda core is largely on the defensive. Um, what would you say we have done and what remains to be done? Um, well, the drones work. Okay. The drones work. Um, uh, they have put enormous pressure on Al-Qaeda in the last three years. Uh, we've killed a lot of Al-Qaeda um, colonels below, and killing Osama bin Laden. Um, terrorist groups, like any organization, have to have leadership, mm -hmm. uh, and we have eliminated a lot of that leadership. Um, and in that sense, the drones and SEALs have had an effect. The, um, Two caveats that we make, one I've already made, is the syndicate. The syndicate uh, is not impacted by the drones at all. And the second caveat is the drones come with a price. Uh, we have alienated the Pakistani nation. Yeah. Um, be careful about that. They didn't love us before the drones. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't go from they loved us to they hate us because of the drones. I would say we went from they really didn't like us and hated us to they really, really, really hate us today. <laughs> uh, it's a matter of degree. But it's a price. It's a price. Uh, and the other reality is you can't stop doing it because every reason to believe that if we take the pressure off, new leaders will emerge, training will resume. So in a way, the drones are like mowing your lawn. You mow the lawn, it's very effective, but at the same time you're laying down the fertilizer for the lawn to regenerate itself. Right. You can't stop, but you also know you are building more jihadists. It's a it's a acute dilemma. Um, I was going to, to ask you about this later, but now that we're on the subject, um, so I've always wondered how valid these claims are that drones 
are the sole reason for anti-American sentiment and you know militancy. How do you assess these claims? It seems like every couple months, Pakistani public opinion of the United States hits a new low. The, la the latest numbers were 74, I think, 75% of Pakistanis consider America an enemy. Right. You know, so. Um, in terms of public opinion, uh, we're at rock bottom, and I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how more alienated Pakistani public opinion can get from the United States. Uh -huh. um, and I could give you three or four things that I think are quite likely to happen that will only make it worse. We'll find Zawahiri. Okay. Let's say we find Zawahiri. Uh, we're going to send the SEALs in again. Uh, second time is going to be even more uh, humiliating, yeah. Yeah, humiliating for Pakistanis. Um, there could be a mass terrorist, mass casualty terrorist attack in the United States. Faisal Shahzad, the Pakistani-American who tried to blow up Times Square. If he had done a better job putting that bomb together, he would have killed dozens of people, maybe hundreds. Uh, it would have been postmarked Pakistan. Would the government of Pakistan be responsible? No. But would the United States be able to simply send a harshly written letter to President Zadari saying, don't ever let it happen again? No. Right. We'd have to do something between invading Pakistan and a harshly letter. letter that will make things worse. We could have another Mumbai. Uh, all kinds of things. All of those will make the relationship worse. The number of things that on the other side of the ledger that might make it better are pretty few and far between. Uh, the one that would, I think, make the biggest difference would be if the Pakistani military pushed the Afghan Taliban into a peace process with the Karzai government. Um, but I don't see that happening. And I'm not sure they can deliver the Afghan Taliban. Yeah. Uh, that would make a difference, but if you were to ask me what's more likely, one of the bad things or the good thing, I'd say the odds are much more likely one of the bad things will happen in U.S.-Pakistani relations will get worse, not better. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Do you think um, that it is that the reason for you know, this rock bottom kind of situation is because of the collateral damage caused by drones or the technology that we use or the infringements of sovereignty, all of those reasons? I think it's all of those reasons, but it's much deeper. It has to do with the history of U.S.-Pakistan relations. Okay. Uh, the animosity is a product of 60 years of perceived broken promises and broken commitments, humiliations, uh, the roller coaster of U.S.-Pakistan relations, uh, which Pakistanis are familiar with in exquisite detail, uh, and remember all the humiliations of the past. Americans, as in general, have uh, no historical memory uh, and are not preoccupied with this. And there's another factor, and it's the India factor. Of course. Pakistanis know that uh, we really want to go out with a much prettier, nicer, richer girl next door <laughs> than with them. Right. And their second or third choice at best. And that uh, is humiliating uh, and aggravating. Uh, uh, and there's really nothing we can do about that. And from the Pakistani standpoint, the problem is it's not just the Americans. Everybody else <laughs> wants to be India's best friend. Even the all-weather friend China is showing more and more interest in India. Mm -hmm. Even the Saudis, Saudis are showing after, more and yeah. more. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so my last question about drones is... Um, your thoughts on whether the program will work as well after we leave, um, after the United States leaves Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of in the hands of the CIA and um, small uh, small number of special operations forces. Do you think it'll work as well, the drone program? Uh, it will be difficult. Uh, why do the drones work? It's not because 
they're a technological marvel, which they are. Mm -hmm. They work because somebody tells you where to look. Um, once someone has told you that you should be looking at the little house on the corner, or you should be looking at 1775 Massachusetts Avenue, <laughs> then you can put a drone over here and watch who comes and goes. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for a tall Arab man, you will see him or you won't see him. Mm -hmm. But somebody's got to tell you the place to look, and that's human, more likely than not, human collection. Um, that human collection requires a pretty extensive network of uh, agents and agent handlers working in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, and they need to be protected. And that's where the so-called large American footprint makes the small drone operation easier to operate. And it will be harder without that footprint there. I'll give you my example. Um, if you are a CIA officer, no, you're, you're, the, you're my agent. I'm the CIA officer, and I say, I'd like you to go across the border tonight and go to uh, Village Blank and see if uh, Mohammed Ilyas Kashmiri is sleeping there, okay? And if he is, let me know. But we're drawing down here, so I'm not going to be here tomorrow. But here's a cell phone. Believe me, you can call me anywhere and tell me, but I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm leaving. <laughs> okay? But you go risk your life, mm -hmm. okay? And here's the cell phone call. Yeah. What are you going to say? I say, forget it, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm taking all the risks, and you're skedaddling. I don't want to work for you anymore. Nothing in it. The, the risk factor that the, the asset is taking starts to go up when he sees that his employer looks like they're skipping out on the door. And that's, that's inevitable. That's inherent in what's going on here. And how are we, how are we going to compensate for that then? Pay them more. <laughs> uh, it's hard to do. It's, it's hard. hard to do. Mm -hmm. We will have to maintain. I mean, what is the purpose of the U.S.-Afghan strategic agreement? Well, the Afghan purpose is to have the United States not cut and run. Mm -hmm. The American purpose is to maintain a base in Afghanistan for counterterrorism. Where is the counterterrorism going to take place? Pakistan. Now, the treaty or the draft treaty says nothing in this treaty is intended to be used against any third nation. Baloney. Yeah, right. Okay, I'd like to move back if we could, to um, some questions about the Al-Qaeda affiliates. Right. Um, so, well, we touched on some of this, but how closely affiliated do you think the regional groups are to Al-Qaeda core? And I'd like to go through them specifically. Right. So, right. you know, I mean, we were talking before about the direction um, that Osama bin Laden was giving to some of these groups, some closer than others, um, but like AQAP, um, AQIM, you said, um, right. were uh, not as close. What about? Um, this is largely conjecture. Okay. The data points we have are really thin. So you're taking a, uh, a thin data point and trying to build an intellectual argument. But I would say that the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is probably the one closestly, most closely affiliated um, with the Pakistan operation. Um, the, because, and the data points I would make to argue that case, they are pursuing the uh, prime directive attacking the Americans more than any other. They've launched three attacks on the United States. Uh, Talib, 
the parcel bombs and then the one that was just foiled. Um, I don't exactly know how far along it was, but it was a third attempt right. on the United States. That's prime directive number one, to target the far enemy. Um, and that's all AQAP. And that's all AQAP. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the uh, Saudi link here and the Yemeni link is pretty strong between uh, Al-Qaeda al-Um and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula uh, and dates back a long way. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have data that at one point uh, AQAP suggested in some kind of message back to bin Laden why don't we make Al-Walaki the emir of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? Mm -hmm. It would be such a clever thing to have an American. Uh, and he apparently sent back a message saying, very clever, but I like it the way it is, mm -hmm. which is a command and control message about personnel, which is the most important thing any leader does, is choose his subordinates. Right. So that appears to be pretty strong. I think there's also a pretty strong relationship with Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, that's a well-established relationship. Uh, differences of opinion over the years, mm -hmm. well-known, but a well-established relationship. And also one where the logistics of communications are fairly simple and well-established. And there is somehow a way to communicate from Pakistan through Iran to Iraq that is been there for That's a long working. time and that works. Mm -hmm. Whether the Iranian government has any role in that or not is a huge question mark. We don't know the answer to. Uh -huh. But we know it's there. We know they communicate. After that, I think it starts to fall off pretty quickly. Um, North Africa has always been a region where Al-Qaeda al-Um had kind of mixed feelings about these guys. Uh, the, uh, I know it sounds absurd, but there's pretty good evidence that bin Laden thought the Algerian GSPC, which becomes Al-Qaeda in Islam, was too violent for his taste. <laughs> which is, I know it sounds weird, but uh, the, the connection is more fragile, uh -huh. I think. Uh, and then when you move to the Nigerian uh, group or uh, the Boko new group, Haram. Boko Haram, or the new group in, in Mali, which may be AQIM reinvented, I suspect it all, it's all becoming more uh, fragile. It doesn't mean, though, that strategic direction doesn't still come. Uh, it just means there's a lot less uh, frequency. Um, I have never spent a lot of time studying Ashabab, uh, so I, I really don't know about the connectivity between the Somali group. Uh, mm -hmm. Mogadishu you? never appealed to me as a place I wanted to go, so <laughs> I just <laughs> I don't, don't blame you. Right, I don't work on it. Um, do you think that any of these groups are capable of exercising any kind of command and control over the other affiliate groups? Or are they just really all fragmented at this point? No, I, I think Al-Qaeda al-Um is the only one capable of being the um, nucleus mm -hmm. of the whole process. And if Ayman Zawahiri was killed tomorrow, I think it would be much harder for them to do. Mm -hmm. um, and the million dollar question, which one of them, or which ones, you know, recruit actively from abroad, and which ones run training camps that recruit foreign or U.S. nationals? Uh, clearly, the syndicate in Pakistan is the foremost recruiter of uh, non-Pakistanis, uh, Arabs, Indonesians, you name it. Uh, more go through training camps there. Not necessarily Al-Qaeda training camps. A lot go through the Lashkar-e-Taibas training uh -huh. camps. Um, the uh, British group that carried out the attack on the British underground, 7-7, mm -hmm. was trained in a Lashkar-e-Taiba training camp. Mm -hmm. 
um, the uh, uh, one certified terrorist ever captured in Australia actually really involved in a terrorist operation and was trained in the Lashkar Taiba camp. Okay. Um, I think that's the uh, biggest industrial manufacturing of jihadist terrorists today. The second would be Yemen. Um, and the space for training people like that in Yemen has grown over the last couple of years mm -hmm. because of the chaos in Yemen. Uh, and clearly, uh, they are looking for Mr. Wright, mm -hmm. the guy who can get on an airplane and fly into the United States with a bomb in his underwear or in his stomach. Right. Um, so you you keep mentioning Lakshari Itaiba, so I'm going to take the, the interview there. Um, you just wrote a piece saying that, arguing that it's the most dangerous um, terrorist organization, more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. Um, can you talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. I think I think Lashkar Taiba is more dangerous because it's under no pressure. Mm -hmm. No one is applying pressure on Lashkar Taiba, at least in its base in Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani army and Lashkar Taiba are in bed with each other, uh, literally in bed with each other. Uh, you will often find Lashkar Taiba offices immediately adjacent to Pakistani army bases, ISI offices. Um, Hafiz Saeed travels around the country to rallies organized by the ISI. He's not hiding. Right. Uh, they're under no pressure. And being under no pressure, uh, and the very fact of the size of this group... Uh, which is growing Which is rapidly. growing, and which numbers in the tens of thousands, mm -hmm. um, makes it, I think, the most dangerous. And certainly since Mumbai... Certainly, Mumbai demonstrated dramatically uh, their capabilities and their targets. And their targets are now not just India, that remains a target, but uh, Americans and Israelis, the targets of the global job. Um, the only real pressure they're under is pressure that the United States, India, and some like-minded governments are putting on their external apparatus. And we have, we have made some progress in that. And the arrest and deportation of this guy, uh, Abu Jandal, mm -hmm. whatever his real name is, uh, is evidence that we're having some success. But um, the safe haven, the sanctuary, which is the country of Pakistan, uh, is under no pressure, which I think makes them very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Why has America's gaze not focused on LET? Um, well, uh, I think we are looking at it more seriously than we have ever in the past. Right. Uh, so that's progress in the right direction. Um, I think that uh, Mumbai helped that. I think that the greater um, emphasis on LET in the think tank commentary world on terrorism has helped. Um, I think the real problem is that we've yet to figure out what to really do about the core of the problem, which is the Pakistani government's sponsorship of LED. Mm -hmm. uh, I am told by my friends in the State Department that LET is on the talking points for every senior meeting, and I have no reason to believe that's not true, but we have a long history of asking Pakistan to do the right thing. I see. Yeah. Well, at least LET is on the terror list. It's on the terror unlike list. Unlike the Haqqani Network. Right. Um, can you talk very briefly about you know, what the relationship is between Pakistan and the ISI and the Haqqani Network? Because they also operate in public, openly, right. freely. Right. Um, well, I described Hafiz Saeed as <laughs> uh, now on the top three most wanted list of the United States. Uh, Mullah Omar is also on the top three. The top three most wanted are Hafiz Saeed, Mullah Omar, and Ayman Zawahiri. Yep. They're all in Pakistan. Hafiz Saeed's not hiding. 
Ayman Zawahiri is hiding. Mullah Omar is in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not hiding from the ISI. He's probably in an ISI safe house. Mm -hmm. But he's not flaunting it like Hafez Said. And Haqqani Network is in the same arena. They're not hiding from the ISI. The ISI knows exactly where they are. The ISI probably has liaison officers with them seven days a week. Um, the dilemma for the Obama administration on the Haqqani network, which I'm, I've never seen them say publicly, but which what I believe is going on, is they're still hopeful that the Afghan Taliban can be brought into a political process. Putting them on the terrorism list will make that harder, not easier. So they don't want to make harder what is already pretty, pretty damn hard. It'll make it harder because we will not be able to provide them. Because with in theory, we're not supposed to talk to, to uh, yeah. somebody on the terrorism list. Mm -hmm. That's our enunciated policy as a country: is we don't talk to terrorists. Mm -hmm. uh, we've already carved a exception to that for the Afghan Taliban Mullah Omar apparatus. We regard him as a he's on the terrorist list, but we've agreed in principle to talk to representatives of this. Right. Um, I, th I, think, I think that's why it's not on the terrorism list. I, I can't come up with a better reason. Um, I've heard people say they don't want to put the Haqqani network on the terrorism list because then Pakistan would be a state sponsor of terrorism. Well, come on. I, mean, <laughs> I think we're a little past that. We're a little past that. Right. Point. That, that strikes me as silly. Right. Um, and my last question for you um, is what we were just talking about the Taliban peace process how do you um, see the negotiations or how have the negotiations gone and you know what are our prospects for success um, the negotiations are suspended mm -hmm. the Taliban suspended them in uh, March or April. April I can't remember exactly what the putative reason they suspended them was because they said we had failed to live up to our commitment to move forward with a prisoner swap the one American soldier they have for five Afghan Taliban in Guantanamo. Um, that is a big problem, as you know. Releasing someone from Guantanamo is entering the legal nightmare of American counterterrorism policy. Uh, Understatement. Right. The notion that you were going to let them go to Doha where they were going to have some kind of little thing on their ankle. Uh, Mr. Romney, in his wildest dreams, couldn't think of a better argument than to hammer Mr. Obama over the head with, you let five terrorists go right. with anklets to Doha. You're not serious about fighting terrorism. Um, so that, that problem, that is a problem, it is a very big problem, and I don't know that there's a very good solution to that problem. If it was up to me, I would do it. First of all, because it would bring home our prisoner, uh, which I think is not an inconsiderable thing. Secondly, it would open the door to hopefully a more substantive process. But I don't think that the prisoner issue was the only reason why Taliban suspended the talks. I suspect that both the Taliban and the ISI are convinced that the United States is giving up in Afghanistan and that we are going to cut and run and that all the yeah. happy talk about an Afghan-American strategic partnership and billions of dollars from the Tokyo summit and the Chicago summit is just happy talk typical of the Americans when they're getting ready to betray you. Uh, they promise you... They promise you a lot of money. They promise you a lot of money. That's mm -hmm. usually the kiss before they betray you. Um, so I think they just decided, why talk to... Why talk when we're going to win? And all we got to do is be patient. If I am correct... Um, then the only thing that will change their mind is if in 2015 we have not cut and run. Because then they will say, hmm, okay, right. we were wrong. 
anything we say in 2012 isn't really going to change their right. mind. So was that something that we did wrong then and should have, you know, by was extending the hand not the right move to make? Extending the hand to the Afghan to the, To the Taliban. And no, mm. I, I, I'm, I'm all for a peace process. It's worth trying. Uh, it's worth trying for two reasons. One, if it succeeds and we actually got a ceasefire and a level of political reconciliation, it makes it easier for us to leave and it's better for Afghanistan. You know, as long as the political process has some, uh, you know, doesn't throw Afghan women under the bus, mm -hmm. but a political outcome is a better outcome for Afghans. They've lived for 30 years in a state of war. I'd argue it's a better outcome for Pakistan. Certainly a better outcome for us. Right. Um, if it doesn't succeed, I would much rather that the onus for failure not be on us, but be on them. Because I think it is easier to rally the world behind uh, supporting Afghanistan if it looks like we and Afghanistan, or more bluntly, Obama and Karzai are interested in the political process, and it's Mullah Omar who's not interested. That's, I think, helps us immeasurably. Um, I think the odds are not good mm -hmm. that the Afghan Taliban are going to come back to the political process in the near future, but we should keep the door open at all times. Okay. Um, I'm going to stop here. Bruce, okay. thank you so much sure for thing. sharing your thoughts and taking the time. My really pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast, a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan.